when I was in the coma, actually, I kept seeing all my photographs. And so when I came out, I had a real desire to start up, but I was pretty much attached to a desk. And Photoshop, this is 2001. It was it had been around a while, but it was just starting to at least get in my view. And the things I love about it most is... This photography podcast is brought to you by Frames, quarterly printed photography magazine. Here is your today's host, W. Scott Olsen, with another fascinating conversation. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another podcast from Frames Magazine. My name is Scott Olson, and today I am talking to a member of the Frames community, Ryan Hers. Ryan's work is all over our group. It is engaging. It is provocative. It's the kind of work that you look at, and you're going to have a response to it. Personally, I find it absolutely thrilling and, and fascinating. Ryan, good afternoon. How are you doing? Pretty good. How are you? I'm doing great. You're out in Santa Monica, California. Tell me what you see out your window. What kind of day is it out there? It's pretty much 75 degrees, uh, another perfect day or another shitty day in paradise. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I envy you that. Here on the plains, it's, it's gray and cold and snowy and winter's coming in. You began your photography career when you were 12 years old and you came across an old rangefinder in a drawer. Tell me that story. Tell me how you got started in photography. Yeah, I think actually it was more like I was about 10 and I found an old contacts rangefinder in a drawer not being used and I think it had been forgotten. And somehow I latched onto it and I'm not quite sure how I learned to use it, but I did. And then a few years later, there was a huge fire, one of those big California brush fires in my neighborhood. And I somehow got it together and took, you know, very poor pictures of the fire and the planes. And I thought that was great. And the photo bug was planted right then. It never left me. Well, what is it at age 12 or 13 or whatever that sent you out to photograph the fires versus just run away? Had you already been smitten a little bit by capturing images or what was the what was the motivation there? I'm 73. That's a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, there was always something about getting the images. I remember I, I have one cute picture of me in my Cub Scout uniform with the contacts around my neck. My Cub Scout hat turned backwards, so I don't know what that portended. You were taking pictures. That bill was getting in the way. There you go. That's right. <laughs> we started the whole movement. There you go. There you go. You also mentioned that you took a two-day seminar when you were in college with Eugene Smith that taught you, uh, as you claim, the appreciation of the photo essay. Well, okay. I mean, I, obviously, we know what photographs are. What do you mean by the photo essay? Well, especially with Gene Smith's work at Life Magazine, it was that form where you got to use eight or ten pictures basically to tell a story, not a book, not a, a long-scale project, but something you would go into for probably a few weeks and try and get eight or ten pictures that condensed it all. Now, in his case, obviously, he was a master at it, and obviously, each composition was better than the last. And meeting him and talking to him a little bit and observing him gave me a lot of input into what I wanted to do in the future and also what the possible costs were, because this is about 1970. He had been fighting with various editors for basically his whole career. 
And it was to the point then when he had uh, recorded, I don't know how he'd recorded, but he had recordings of his conversations with various editors and how they didn't understand what he was doing at the time. And he actually broke into tears at one point in front of about 35, 40 people. Other points he was brilliant and other points he was certainly technically a master. So that was very insightful. I thought he was a rather troubled man at the time. And I, you know, had hopes for his future. And lo and behold, a year later, he started Minamata, which obviously was a large scale book project that was very, very successful and led to some of his best images. Mm -hmm. There's a good lesson there on both sides, both success and working through the, the struggle when people don't appreciate the kind of stuff that we're trying to get out there. I don't think that's unique to photography. I think musicians, I think writers, I think dancers, you know, all when they come up against a border are going to meet resistance. Um, that border is, is, is there because of some evolution of the form hasn't quite grown that direction. I bring that up because I am looking at your project called Unseens, which you subtitled Street Photography in the Age of Photoshop. Street photography is supposed to be the, the very real, the documentary, the untouched. And here you are really playing with that form. So tell me about surrealism in street photography. Tell me about Unseens. Where did it come from? What are you doing? Well, in terms of surrealism, I've always considered myself to have a good, healthy dose of that. And I think a lot of the early street photographers in France were surrealists at their heart. Certainly Cortez and uh, Man Ray were surrealist. And it, it was a thread that went through everything back then in Paris at the time when everybody found the Leica. And it, that was really the birth of the street photography uh, movement, in my estimation, anyway. Mm -hmm. Unseens are a little different. They're not different than street photography in that they are not planned. They are not set up. And in a way, I'm competing with Photoshop work that, is very set up and planned, done in the post rather than the pre. Mm -hmm. The unseens, quite a few of them, are shot in, with three photographs. And as a street photographer, I have to see where the elements are moving and where I think they will go. So that when later I join those three photographs together, they're in a place I want them to be. So it's the same ethic as a street photograph but with Photoshop helping in the creation of it. Now, there's some of them that are, there's 10 seconds difference between the right, the left, and the center. But a lot of them are only a half or a one second for the, the scene to develop. So it's a, a different kind of street photography, but I think it's still based in street photography. I'm looking at the picture now that's got the model of the Tyrannosaurus Rex on the left-hand side. Right. Tell me the story. I mean, this is, I'm looking at the borders here. That's what, three images? Yeah, it's got to be three images. Mm -hmm. It's a few seconds apart. What are you after here? What, you know, why, why this and not just do it that one shot? Because I love the ghost. Because I've been doing it for so many years, it's, it's kept me interested, number one. But I love the ghosting. I love how the woman in the center is only half there. And the, the shadows coming out of her green blouse. The one child with the striped shirt is in the scene twice, both in the very left-hand one and the very right-hand one. And oftentimes you can follow people where they jump around. But the main thing I love is the ghosting. For me, you mentioned the child that, that moves and stuff. It really adds a narrative layer 
to the piece. There's motion in the image that I think you try to reconcile as a viewer and say, how did this kid get from here to there? You know, how much time has passed? But also, you know, how has this environment changed? The ghost provokes the question of where did the rest of her go? Yes. <laughs> so it, it is art photography with a, with a foundation in street. Tell me about the picture of, of Ocean Avenue, the guy crossing the street, the fire truck that's disappearing, the car that's appearing. That was the first one I did, actually. And I wanted a shot to uh, introduce a, a series I was working on at the time called West of Ocean. And what the mm -hmm. series is, is everything is west of Ocean Avenue, which is where that street is. So I thought a, a good opening shot would be to introduce you to the fact that that was Ocean Avenue because the sign was in there. I had been thinking about this method for a while. And like I say, this is the only one on a tripod. All of the rest of them is a little different. But there's probably, I would say, a full minute between the images in this one because I could use a tripod and it could do that. And so in that case, I had, you know, like maybe 20 or 30 different images, and then I could play around with how to put them together. And uh, I like the ghosting in this one versus the absolute no tension walk in the, in the guy going across the street. I mean, he really looks like he's just out for a Sunday stroll. And you got the Ocean <laughs> Avenue sign in there, even though the fire trucks hurling at him. <laughs> It is a very compelling photograph. And again, th there is motion. There, there is narrative in this image. Tell me why you're not expanding the borders, because we, we see the white rectangle and we see the three images blended together in the middle. And it's quite clear what you're doing. It would have been very easy just to expand that and, and pass it off as a single image. Yeah, I, I kind of like the randomness of this. Photoshop produces the image that way. And there's five or six different ways you can put it together and you keep experimenting with which one. And then the one I like is the one I like. And I like the fact that they're different shapes. So, you know, photography doesn't have to be all squares and rectangles. Oh, absolutely. And, and one of the things that I admire by not cropping out the borders is that you're being very honest and that this is a composite. You're not trying to deceive anybody by saying, you know, here's this image that I caught by magic. It's like, no, this is art. By the way, no cropping is my ethic through all of my work, so it wasn't just here that I don't crop. I'm going to want to talk about cropping or the lack thereof when we get to some of your other, your other works as well. But before we leave the, the surrealists here, you, you make a statement that you know, you've been going for a long time trying to get the look and feeling of an old Kodachrome transparency. And Photoshop allowed you to do that. Yeah. T tell me about your appreciation, your history, your reasons for uh, being such a fan of Photoshop. About 2001, I had a uh, six-month hospital stay that left me completely debilitated. Six weeks in the hospital and then six months recovering. So after that, obviously, I couldn't work in a dark room or do anything like that. And it also let me realize how important photography was to me again. I'd sort of let it drift a bit. When I was in the coma, actually, I kept seeing all my photographs. And so when I came out, I had a real desire to start up, but I was pretty much attached to a desk. And Photoshop, this is 2001. It, was, it had been around a while, but it was just starting to at least get in my view. And the things I love about it most is no more spotting. God, mm -hmm. did I hate to spot. To take a black and white image the other way, you had to use ferrous cyanide, and that was, certainly wasn't a good thing to do. But the Kodachrome thing, I had started taking, I mean, started in black and white. And, you, you know, you try some color stuff, and I love the way th stuff looked in Kodachrome. But you could not make a print that looked like that. 
just couldn't see prints weren't that. There wasn't anything. And I, I actually mentored with one of the more famous dye transfer printers in LA for a while and, and came up with a method to be able to do dye transfers. But even they really weren't the same. But with Photoshop, I think I get a pretty good Kodachrome look, you know, hit the vibrance and do it. And to a lot of people, that won't look real because they think of the old color prints. But to me, it's reality. Well, very cool. I want to move over to your website. And for those of you that are listening, it's ryanherzphoto.com, R-Y-A-N-H-E-R-Z-P-H-O-T-O.com, where you have a number of galleries, a number of collections here. And I'd like to start with the children of Edgewood. That's good. Um, So without my giving it away, tell everybody what this project is, how it got started, what you're after here. Okay. I had just gotten together with a a girlfriend who later became my wife, and she worked for Penny's, J.C. Penny's. One of her jobs was to go to Edgewood, which was a home for the developmentally disabled, and dress them, basically. So through that, it came to pass that they needed some photographs taken for ID pictures so that they could get state help with the clothing. And then also they, all the kids wanted to have a picture on their bed. You couldn't get a school photographer who was the one naturally you would think to do it interested because of the subject matter. But when they asked me, I was more than happy to do it. And I asked them if I could take photographs also around the hospital. And they said, fine. This is long before the the days of HIPAA or anything else. So Mm -hmm. I probably spent three months there, a good month just photographing around the hospital, meeting everybody. Because then when I had to do the portraits, I set up a studio there. I did it in two seatings, which was obviously a fairly difficult thing to do. And I certainly couldn't have done it without the nurses and all the help. And then uh, for each child, and when I say, I call them children because it was a lot in their 50s and 60s, but they were still children in a lot of ways. Right. I would do two color pictures for the headshots, and then I'd change the back on the Hasselblad and do just two black and white exposures. So everything you see there is the better of the two, which I'm... Okay pretty proud looking back that I was able to do. And especially it was a very chaotic scene, but I don't know I've ever had a shooting to both of them where I was more focused. And I think the work shows that. And I'm, they were compositions like street photography. You couldn't really think of your compositions. You didn't have the time. I had to do each one in probably both black and white and color. I probably only had two minutes with the person. Wow. Well, you came up I mean, dealing with the portraits first and then the hospital bit in a second. The portraits are really, really striking and compelling and, and I think profoundly um, respectful and, and illuminative of what's going on there. I would imagine some people would look at this and say, you know, there is an issue here. Well, the f- funny thing was when I shot the pictures, I knew I was not going to use them anytime soon, that a, a large portion of time would have to go by. And it turned out to be a little longer than I wanted. It didn't show them really until 2008. And I think I shot them in 1976. So that was quite a ways to go to 2018. And luckily enough, I ran into John Mikowski at Darkroom, which is DRKRM Gallery in Los Angeles. And he loved the work and we put a show up. So I went back to Edgewood in 2008 and told them what I was going to do because I thought they needed a warning. 
So the director couldn't believe that anybody had actually let me shoot. And if you look at the pictures, it's obvious I'm not sneaking those pictures. Right. And then some of the parents also got upset. So we did a special showing for them. And when they saw the show, they were very uh, moved. And I gave the parents prints if their kids were one of the kids in the print. So it turned out very nice with at least the parents, which is all I really cared about at Edgewood. I never got any trouble with the the staff, but it wasn't the staff. It was the administration. People whose job it is to get in the way and slow things down. Yeah, they never (laughs) gave me any trouble, but uh, they didn't give me support either. But that day that the parents approved was one of my best days as a photographer. Well... I can imagine exactly why they would have approved. These are tremendously wonderful uh, portraits. I can also see why an administrator these days, if you were to simply pitch it as an idea, they would run away immediately saying, uh, no way. So, I mean, you're, you're again, you're right up against a border that is, is difficult to cross. Any of these portraits have stories behind them that's particularly memorable? I mean, I'm just sort of going through them here, but one by one, I'm thinking every single one of them has got to be a really cool story, but... I can give you more stories on the stuff around the hospital than I can the portraits. Because like I say, the way it it was so quick and, and everything I was doing was so, it's all instinct. And yeah. so my croppings are, are very unusual, but I love them. I couldn't have thought them out. Uh, that's what I like about street photography. Is sometimes you end up with a composition you could not have thought out. But yet, mm-hmm. it's perfect. Absolutely. Well, let's move over. You also have, you know, you have the portraits of the individual kids, and then you've got the pictures just around the institution itself. You said, you know, do you have a story there? Okay, there's one I call Mick. It's the the sunlit room, patients in the middle of the picture in bed, and it's got a window behind them and the birds on the wall. That was one of those, I get a little emotional even thinking about it. I was just walking down the hall and I went in that door and the light was exploding all over the room. And it's one of the few photographs I have where I think I took five exposures. That's totally not me. I have a lot of pictures where I've only taken one exposure. This one, I took five. It was a moment that I'll never forget. I mean, the way the light was moving, the way the girl was moving. And it was like I'd, I'd walked into another world. I'm looking at the picture right now. It, it is, I coming back to the same word, it's compelling. You know, you start, you just stare at it and you're wondering what's going on. Beautifully aesthetic with, with the light and the birds. and, and uh, Yeah, you couldn't, you couldn't have uh, art directed it. No, you couldn't. What's great about street photography is you get to do things that you could never think of. <laughs> well, d- tell me about one that, that I'm sure raised a few eyebrows, and that's the women on display. Yeah, that was... Um, early 70s. And I mean, I took classes in feminism. So I always tended to look everything through a feminist viewpoint. So Mm -hmm. women on display tried to weigh the differences between feminism and attraction. And sometimes they are uh, in sync with each other and sometimes not. Some of the images show exploitation. Some of them just show uh, like a woman in advertising but basically, it was exploring those things. And what is it, what's the reaction to this series, Ben? Depends. Uh, the one Malibu, the beach shot, the bikini shot, is probably the most popular image I've ever taken. It's the one on frames that got like, you know, 
200 views. Mm-hmm. Uh, where usually I average about 40 or 50. And uh, <laughs> again, this is a, this is a street photography gem because I'm not even looking through the camera at that. And I don't think I could make a more perfect composition than that. I'm holding that camera over my head and pointing it where I think I want it. Oh, okay. When you look at that, I don't think you can come up with a better composition than that. You didn't crop that to even it out just a little bit? There is not. No. no (laughs) It's just an ethic I started with and I kept up with. The only time I crop is if I'm making an assemblage. And I'm going, to, I'm going to remind everyone, this is at ryanherzphoto.com. Up at the top there, if you click on portfolios, then you'll get one night at the IVAR, which is I-V-A-R. Yeah, which is, some of them are in women on display, but then some of them aren't. Okay. Tell me, tell me the story there. Well, the IVAR was a place in Los Angeles, and again, I think this is early 80s, that had a camera night. You could bring a camera and do whatever you wanted. Gary Winograd shot there. A lot of photographers did. And that particular picture, now there's ones that are really outrageous in there. This one I find on the beautiful side because she's performing for the guy in the wheelchair. And my guess is he would never in any other environment in this be able to have that experience. And I think that's there's a beauty to that. I came to know a couple of strippers and they all told me they enjoyed performing for the handicapped. Because the mm-hmm. look in their eyes was something they could never see anywhere else for what that's worth. And But this image also includes, you have another photographer there on the right-hand side. You, you have the, the worn furniture, the frayed stage and carpet. I mean, th- this is perhaps a beautiful moment in a unbeautiful setting. So what, what, what is it you're wanting me to take away from this? That sometimes beautiful things can happen in places that you don't expect. Again, there's a a look at what becomes sexually attractive and to who. I personally don't hold sex workers in ill repute. I think it's uh, occupation like any other. Now, there's other photographs in there that are very, there's two that are really dicey. I mean, I'm probably the only guy on frames that before I press the button, I have, should I really do this? (laughs) (laughs) but but that's my i've chosen that again this would not be allowed to exist today no and that shot with the flash in the center you are so far removed from center of the subject there that really your photograph is not about that your photograph is about that entire environment Mm -hmm. um and the audience and the setting and and it, it is not a exploitive photograph in, in the way that people might assume. It really is more of, of a sociological statement about, I think, you know, what's going on there. Interesting thing is the, the Flash is my friend who was sitting in the other picture. And it means <laughs> we both synced up without a slave, a Flash at each other. Oh, my. I don't know. What the, what's the chances of that? One in a million. That, that is absolutely true. The children of Edgewood, the women on display, one night at the IVAR, are all black and white. Mm-hmm. And yet, you said a couple of minutes ago, you switched you know, over to, to really loving Photoshop for it, its color emulations. Why are these portfolios in black and white? Well, because they were shot in black and white and a period of my life. And now I've moved to color for the most part. So there has, I, I just changed. Again, because I could finally find some way to print 
I figured I'd done pretty much everything I wanted to do in black and white. And occasionally I'll shoot another black and white, but I, my interest moved to color. Desert Pool was the first thing I did after the rehabilitation. Tell me about Desert Pool. To rehabilitate myself, I was swimming and I kind of started looking at the lights. It was the last thing I did on film because uh, there really wasn't, probably was digital underwater cameras, but I didn't know it. So it was the last thing I shot on film because I just used a Nikonos just to capture the light and the, the color blue, basically. And, and we should tell everyone, these are underwater pictures in a municipal swimming pool. And what you have all over the walls and the floor of the pool are those bands of light, you know, coming through the waves that are up on t- very abstract, very fluid, um, and really, really very pretty. Tell me, tell me what the reaction to this one has been. Either love it or hate it. Either love it or just uh, not get it at all, I would say, for the most mm-hmm. part. Then the next thing I moved to was uh, Desert Christ Park, which is an interesting story real quick. Notice there's some black and white and some color. Yes, indeed. The black and whites were shot one day in 1969. And then I went back in 2000, I'm going to say 10, and shot the color. So it was the, the contrast. You see, there's the one picture of black and white of Christ's hands outstretched. And then there's uh-huh. the other one where after the earthquakes and the things that have passed there, his hands are missing. It became a story to me about not only time, but even worse than time, was the man who did the statues to begin with did it as a story to promote world peace. And he was somewhat religious, but not super religious. And in, in the statuary, which you can see, and I have other black and whites, there are... Uh, People who aren't apostles, they're just people that happen to be in the crowd. And sometimes they'd even be wearing modern clothing. But when the church took the place over at some point in between, they changed all the statues to make them all disciples. And they did a very, very bad job about it. And to me, it uh, sort of showed what had happened in our country religiously in that time frame. Would you consider yourself a political photographer? Sure. I don't have a problem with that. I mean, my big themes are sex, politics, and religion. So, you know, <laughs> other than that, I don't know. You forgot rock and roll in there, Ryan. Come on. No, I've got a rock, couple of rock and roll pictures. There's one. I only have one. It's of Jerry Garcia. I, I was going to ask you about that because I'm completely jealous that you got those shots. It's actually in the Grateful Dead registry up at UC Santa Cruz. Is it? You hit the jackpot on that one. Tell me what you're working on now. The unseens mostly. Um, I've really enjoyed my time here with frames. I've, I've had a real ball. It was the first time I got on a site where I went, usually about 10% of the photographs I like. On frames, mm-hmm. a good 50%. And it was a level of work that I thought was much above what I'd seen in other places. And I'm no reason to name those places. I think uh, Tomas has taken it up a level. And I... I got my magazine. I love the magazine. And it sort of reminds me a little bit of the old camera, which people would not have heard of. <laughs> well, there's got to be issues out there somewhere. You're working on the unseens, so you're spending a lot of time. Has COVID really messed that up or are you able to get the work done even in the current day? I've done a couple, but it hasn't. Also, at 73, I can't do the things. I mean, I couldn't pull off Edgewood today. 
I, right. I can only walk about a mile before my back starts giving me out. So it's, it's changed what I can do, but I'm going to still keep plugging at it. I think I have about 25 scenes now. If I got it up to maybe 25 that I really liked, which would probably mean doing another 10 or 15, I could see it being a book. Yeah. Well, I, I would look forward to that. And I, I really recommend everybody go to your website and, and look through these portfolios. Something like Children of Edgewood, I think, is remarkable, not only for the work you did, but the fact that we probably can't do that kind of work anymore. Or it would occur to people and, and then be abandoned because of the obstacles in the way. Shameless plug here. It's available at Dark Room Editions. That's D-R-K-R-M Editions. Okay. Very good. Well, thank you, sir. This has been wonderful. I've enjoyed every moment. Well, thank you. And yeah, it's been great for me. And the Frames experience has been great for me. That is wonderful. I think everybody listening is going to agree with you. Thank you, sir. Frames. Because excellent photography belongs on paper. Visit us at www.readframes.com.